0: Good evening and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we have on Mark Farner. How are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing, but not mill doing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Well played. Mark Mark has been everywhere. He is... (sighs) The history of what you've gone through with Grand Funk is huge. You know, everyone knows about it. But for the people that don't know so much about you, that may be new to you, could you give a little bit of a brief bio of your little band history just a little bit, and then we'll kind of jump into what's going on today. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be too much in the past. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, man. Yeah. So I, I picked up the guitar uh, when I was 15 years old, because my mother felt so bad for me. Uh, I was playing football in junior varsity and uh, we scrimmaged the varsity players and they kicked our asses <laughs> and, and I had uh, water on the knee, and I, I was hurting. And I, the, that doctor told my mother I wouldn't be playing more football. I wouldn't be running track in the fall. And all the things that I love to do, I wouldn't be able to do that. So in her mercy and her sympathy towards her oldest son, she got me six lessons and rented a k acoustic guitar and the strings dude were this far away from the neck it would have been <laughs> better used for a bow and arrow you know, i started playing when i was 15 i uh, got six lessons and uh i got three of them down and then the guitar player that was teaching me had a hunting accident it was a uh, bird season in michigan uh, ring neck pheasant season when ring neck pheasants were plentiful in michigan and uh, and this guy shot himself in the foot with a 12 gauge sean so uh he calls my mom says well i'm not going to be able to teach your son anymore so just have him go watch the high school band and uh, because we, i had some friends that played music yeah. and my sister was really tight with them and so i'd go watch them make the chords and then i'd go home and i'd Oh, that's how they oh that and then they started showing me things uh, because the, those guys they liked to play, but they didn't like to sing. they didn't have the confidence and they didn't want to sing. so I would sing because I was in the, I was in the choir class too, so and I love to sing. so I would sing the music and they would play until I got good enough to where I could actually plug the guitar in. My guitar cord, this is back in the coil cord days, mm-hmm. it would go through the amp handle and just hang over the back of the amp until I was good enough to plug in. Actually, <laughs> plug in. So, uh, I got that good and I plugged in and I started playing and uh played uh, for a year and a half with Dick Wagner. In The Bossman, you know, Dick Wagner is, uh, of course, Alice Cooper's uh, guitar player. Ursa Major is a great guitar player and a songwriter. Oh, my God. He he wrote Only Women Bleed. I mean, he he's a great, great songwriter. And while I was with Dick Wagner, um, we were at his apartment one night after a gig we played in Michigan. And it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning when we got in. His Mm -hmm. wife and kids are in the other room sleeping and we got our electrics out and we're playing. Not amplified, you know, not plugged in just sitting, you know how to just sit there and we are playing, not bothering the neighbors at all. So I just come out and I said, "Okay, how the hell do you do this? He said, what are you talking about? I said, how do you write all these songs, dude? He says, well, it's inside of me and they just come out. He says, you can write songs. I said, I can. (laughs) it's like he gave me permission i can he says yeah man you got songs inside of you are you kidding me he says you got the soul to sing it he says it's i know it's inside of you so he goes to bed i sit up and i write heartbreaker which is on the first grand funk album and it's on this that was your first song that was my first song and really, uh, that's,
0: that's quite a way to hit it out of the park. I mean, you should, your first song should have been a guitar player teacher that got shot in the foot and couldn't teach you because his foot was shot. That should have been your first song. <laughs> right. <But laughs> Heartbreaker is a good, a good uh, second there.
1: Yeah. That's amazing.
0: You. That's and amazing.
1: It's, uh, it's on the DVD uh, from Chile with love. And by the way, $3 from each DVD that is sold goes to Veterans Support Foundation. And Veterans Support Foundation is a great organization. It is brothers and sisters, veterans who are serving veterans, helping veterans that are returning home. And mm-hmm. these guys don't take a penny, Sean. They do it from the love in their heart and from their experience. They can advocate for our veterans in front of the the uh, uh, Veterans uh, Affairs, the Board of Veterans Affairs. You got to have somebody that is qualified to, to uh, you know, to stand in the gap for you. And these guys, right. so I'm proud to give $3 from every fourteen ninety nine. you know, DVD. No, that's awesome.
0: Actually, so people know what we're talking about. Let's step back for one minute. We'll go back in your history. So you have a new DVD out.
1: Yes. Right? From Chile. From uh, Chile.
0: And that's what we're talking about. We're going to promoting it, but we're also going, we're going to meander a little bit tonight. Yeah. But that's what you're talking about. This new, awesome DVD and that's where the money's going to come from off of that. So yeah, please, it's, right. it's a great cause. It really is.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Sean. So, uh, you know, I was playing in Dick Wagner's band and then Terry Knight in the pack was going and, uh, they lost their bass player. He got drafted. This is during the Vietnam era. And so they said, can you play bass? I said, I could play guitar. I don't see why I couldn't play bass. <laughs> you know, I'd never <laughs> tried it before. So I went and I bought a Burns bass. Are yep. you familiar with the Burns?
0: I have A little bit, yes.
1: It's an English thing. But man, that Burns was killer. And I, I went and played bass with uh, Terry in the pack for a while. And then Terry was not a good singer. And Brewer and I the drummer, Don Brewer and myself said, we need to fire him because we can both sing better than he can. And, and that would, you know, put the, put the ball in the, in our hands and we could, we could run this play. And we did. And, uh, that's how we, I got into the music business. And, and when we, uh, in 1969, uh, it was the fabulous pack at that point, because when Terry Knight left, we, we called it the, uh, just the pack. And then we called it the fabulous pack. And we did some stuff for, for Pontiac motor division, uh, the wide dragon, which Dick Wagner wrote. And, uh, and then, uh, we were out on the East coast in Boston area. We actually stayed on uh, Cape Cod, which is uh, uh, you know, just across the bridge and down the road, there was uh, this little town called East Sandwich. And here was the these guys. From I go Michigan. there once a year.
0: Yeah, if we vacation we go to do
1: there. So awesome, awesome. So these here, here we are. These guys from Michigan who never seen the ocean yet, right? So man, dude, we had every starfish. We had all this stuff. We we're gonna take home, and we're staying in <laughs> summer cottages. We had two yep. summer cottages. Right there on the beach, and it was a beautiful thing until the snowstorm hit, and oh, my God, it was the worst storm in the history of the world, and the basement things, the crawl space underneath these uh cottages flooded. So all of our things that we were going to take back to Michigan were frozen in this water <laughs> in the crawl space, along with the pipes, so you couldn't flush the shitter. You couldn't turn water on and get anything out of the tap. It was frozen. We were we were melting down snow for the last week that we were there. For the last, like, eight days, we go get a pan of snow. Thank God we had natural gas at the kitchen stove, and we had a little gas space heater, you know, Cape Cod. Th- th- these are not meant to stay all winter, they, they just
0: No, it's not. That's why the, the, the part of the story is how— what, who- how were you there at that time of year to begin with this is what early not even seventies, right? Late sixties. So it was yeah. way less developed.
1: Yeah. 69, dude. This is 1969. After so, August,
0: everyone's got to pack up and leave unless you're like in the middle and you have a house. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, man. Well, we <laughs> right. wanted to leave, but there was no getting off the Cape. Mm-hmm. And so the guy at the grocery store, fronted us some oatmeal we didn't have sugar we didn't have butter we didn't have milk we had nothing but oatmeal And we every day we'd ration it out we'd melt down the snow cook a little more oatmeal and think man when is somebody going to come and save our asses well this two of the guys in the in the band were married the keyboard player craig frost and Kenny Rich, a guitar player from Canada that was playing with us at the time. And by the time Brewer's Ma, uh Western Union some money up to a drugstore on the mainland in Massachusetts, there. And we we hitchhiked up to this drugstore, got the money, and rented a van, put all our equipment in there and Drove back to Michigan and we go to Delta Promotions, who is the outfit that set us out there. And they told us, You're going to be doing promotional gigs. And then if you do real good, then we can go back and make some serious money in this market. And Mm -hmm. we were confident enough to to say, Well, we're going to do real good because they're going to want us to come back. And so we were thinking the gigs that we had played already, we had played like four or five gigs. We were thinking we were doing it for free, and and the people, but the people were eating it up, man. They they yeah. did like yeah. our music, and uh, lo and behold, we found out we were getting paid. And the guy that was bringing us our our groceries out to the Cape, he was taking the money.
0: <laughs> oh, so he wasn't fronting your, your food. Yeah. He was front. He was fronting to say, but he was not fronting <laughs> yeah.
1: the food. But by the time we got back to Michigan, the guys that were married, their wives threatened to divorce them, and they had to quit the band. And so Brewer and I are sitting there, and we're going, what the hell are we going to do now? And, and I said, dude, let a, let's just make a three-piece, and let's not get anybody that's got a, a, even a girlfriend, let alone a mm-hmm. wife. Because we don't want the women messing up the band.
0: (laughs) Especially (laughs) in the early days. You got to
1: travel. So uh, there we were, 20 years old. We got Mel Shocker, who was playing with Question Mark and the Mysterians at the time. And uh, we started rehearsing at the Flint Federation of Musicians, the Union Hall on Averill Street in Flint, Michigan. And uh, that's where a lot of the the first album was written. I had already written Heartbreaker, but then I wrote, you know, Are You Ready? And and on and on, the first album. And uh, we got an opportunity to play the pop festival in 1969. uh, Atlanta, Georgia, it was called Atlanta Pop. And it was a three-day festival. And the attorneys uh, for Terry Knight, who was now our manager... Uh, and he was living in New York City and his attorneys in in the city were doing the legal work for this pop festival. Mm-hmm. So they got us an opening slot to to, you know, go on at noon at 110 degrees in the shade, dude, uh, in Atlanta, hot
0: Atlanta, hot, no, hot Atlanta, right, Atlanta, buddy. I've been r- <laughs>
1: and there. And they took a reduced fee on, on doing the legal work and, and got their band, us, that opening slot. And that was really what kicked it off. Because when we got on stage, the fans didn't want us to go off stage. They wouldn't let us leave the stage. They just kept calling us back over and over. It's like, oh my God, they like us. They like us. And then we're talking 185,000 people, dude. I mean, uh, you know, I'd never seen this many people before. This
0: seems like it's going really fast since you, the trio, to write some songs. What was the time time window from writing the songs to being on that stage? I mean, of the band. How fast was that?
1: What was the what?
0: What was the time limit from when you started writing as a trio to being on a stage? That was pretty
1: fast. Oh, it was. It was, uh, you know, talking about Less than six weeks.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. That would never happen nowadays. That was a good time.
1: Well, this friend of ours in Michigan loaned us his van. And we rented a U-Haul trailer. And we put all our gear in there, our West amps. And we're going down I-75. And this is before 75 was finished all the way through. And we had to get off and take some side roads. So we're off taking these side roads, and the band had done a gig the night before, so we're all tired. And I was riding shotgun, and Jimmy, who was driving, he he was loaned to us along with the van. You know, we got (laughs) a driver and the band. So Jimmy's driving us, and I look up as I wake up, and it's it's not quite daylight yet, but it's a little twilight. And I see a sign with an arrow says I 75 and an arrow go that. I said, Jimmy, that says 75 to the right. And he just jerks that thing, not thinking that there's a trailer on the back of this. And it flips over and down through the ditch. It, it rolls. The, the safety chains busted both of them, blink, just nothing. And uh, we had to unload that thing, take all the equipment out of it. Push it over back onto the wheels, load it back with the equipment after we got it up, you know, hooked to the back to the van. And we're, we're going down the side of the expressway. And we know that our, our stuff is trashed uh, be, just because of that rolling of that trailer. And uh, the, some of the transformers had ripped right from the chassis, and they were aluminum chassis and these big ass transformers. So they ripped right off of the chassis and the wires broke and it was all, Oh my God. So when we get, you know, on the expressway and we're going all of a sudden this wheel passes us. I, and I look back and the sparks are flying. It came off our trailer, dude. This, this thing. I went, Oh my God, what the hell is that? And we had to retrieve this wheel that had gone over into the northbound lane, and and almost hit this semi-truck right in the, you know, right in the uh, windshield, but luckily bounced off the top of the cab like boom, and and way the hell and gone, and, and, and we went and retrieved it, and by the time we got back over there, I mean, we're running late in the first place. We said, oh my God, we got to put this thing back on. How are we going to do that? Well, we took a couple of lug nuts, off the wheel on the other side. So we're going down and these wheels are doing this, dude. It's like, oh my God. We're just on the shoulder of the road going very slow. But the very next exit had U-Haul trailers. And so we swapped that thing out for a good one, got it all fixed up and beat feet for Atlanta. And when we got to Atlanta, we pull in and we've got less than an hour Uh, before the show starts. And we got to be on stage at noon. So the guys are looking at this and they're shaking their heads and they're going, Oh my God, these, the amps are trashed. Look at this. And all these other roadies at that time came over and they said, Oh my God, you guys need some help, man. So they had soldering irons and they had shit going and it was all these other band roadies saw that we needed help and they came in and there must've been a dozen roadies that were, you know, soldering like a,
0: like a a pit crew. It
1: was, it was amazing, Sean. And, uh, and got us, I mean, when I got up on stage, here's the transformer sitting up on top of the head, but they had, you know, put wires in color matched them and, and extended them so that the, that the transformer could set up top and it worked. It worked. I can't tell you why, but it worked. <laughs> and uh, and the people loved it, man. And, and I was very uh, respectful of those other guys, man, that helped us out so that we could be on stage on time. It wasn't like, you know, oh, you guys are too bad. You know, you're going to have to hustle your ass off. No, they jumped in there and said, come on, man, we'll get you on stage. It was great. And uh, that was and, awesome. Yeah, man. But you, that kind of stuff hardly ever happens anymore. Just saying.
0: No, that's crazy. It, you know, it really feels like it just. We, you guys have been laughing at one point, right? You guys caught the comedy of when the tire goes by. It's like, you know, like a National
1: Lampoon's comedy yeah. skit or something, right?
0: You guys, <laughs> there's so much tragedy, you had to laugh at some point.
1: Exactly. Oh. Exactly, dude. But we opened. At 12 noon, we were on that stage. We did our set right at noon,
0: hot sun noon. Oh,
1: yeah, buddy. Oh. But the next day, we went, we went on at 7 p.m. Ooh. So they moved us up, you know, it, it wasn't nearly as hot at seven <laughs> yeah. as it was at noon. And then the last night, we went on at 11 o'clock under the lights. And we had the whole, the full blown, you know, spotlights and everything. And that was the first time I'd ever been on a stage that had spotlights, dude. And they had the, you know, the super troopers. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I really loved that shit. So, uh, you know, we got off to a good start and, and that 185,000 people were not all from Atlanta. They were from all over the country, as you well know you know, uh, that back then the uh, pop festivals drew people, you know, from every state and from Canada and from the other countries would come to the pop festivals. We played Texas international in Louisville, Texas. And, uh, and we played, uh, what was the other one up there in Montreal, uh, strawberry fields. We played, uh, the festival, uh, with, uh, no, oh, what was that? Joe Cocker and uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I do. Yeah. Well, this was I have the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this was a, a festival that was played out in Michigan, and as the as the cars full of people would come in, that's you know they'd pay right there at the booth, cash. Boom, boom, boom. This is long time before credit cards, uh, so everything was cash. And we are up there playing our hearts out. We get off stage and find out the guy, the promoter says somebody pulled in with guns and, and stole the money from, yeah, it was a setup. It was bullshit. <laughs> and and nobody got paid, including Joe Cocker and the mad dog is an Englishman. Nobody uh, that was playing that night got paid. And that so we kind of got introduced to
0: uh, that's your second time of being ripped off for playing. Right. So far yeah. i tally here. I mean, I feel mean, like a chalkboard or a big whiteboard here to keep up with this.
1: That's I right. I feel, I
0: feel there's a pattern forming here.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, that that's some of the history um, and uh, of course, Shea stadium, you know, flying over the stadium and, and watching um, the stadium physically bouncing as Humble Pie is on stage, which was set up at second base. Uh, we had a hell of a PA system, no monitors, but we had a hell of a PA. I was singing so, and playing at the front of house.
0: So that's that going to ask fit the sound because notoriously the Beatles had the issue with, they couldn't hear their speakers in, you know, the old story, yeah. but like you actually had the right speakers for the right job.
1: Yes. And Shea stadium was a semicircle so that the focal point for that semicircle was second base dude and when all those people started singing closer to home my i it was coming to my ears like oh my god listen to them singing they're singing my song oh my god thank you lord oh my god this is some great shit man uh uh, and me just telling you just now, Sean, I'm getting goosebumps because I'm going back there.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, it's got to be powerful. I, I couldn't even imagine what it's like to have a song you wrote and just have thousands of people just singing it back to you. Yeah, dude. Uh, I'm I, telling you, pinch me. I got to keep you grounded, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, man.
0: So so you guys had a couple of good albums in, and you guys were rocking. How, let me ask you. So you, um, you guys actually you did a couple of cover songs too yeah two two some kind of wonderful and Local. how how did you choose those songs? Just I was always kind of curious about like what made you decide those songs?
1: Well, when we did some kind of wonderful
0: which is hands down the best version is yours I love that i, I that I'm glad you guys did that one because I love that thank
1: you well, Jimmy Einer was a producer and uh we had we had did like some gigs just prior to this session in new york city at the record plant and the uh the, the manager at the time andy cavalieri god rest his soul he said what the hell is that song that you guys keep singing in the back of the limo on the way to the gigs it was a uh, you know because we used to warm up with it some kind mm-hmm. of and i said what is it? I said, you never heard that before. That's a soul brother six, man. That's, that's uh, some kind of wonderful, you know, John Allison wrote that song. He said, well, you guys need to record it. He says, I think that would be a big hit. So when we went in with uh, Jimmy Einer, he loved it. And that, and of course we did uh, bad time to be in love was on that same album. And we had great airplay. Uh, you know, some kind of wonderful went to number one, bad time. I got an award, a BMI award in 1975 for that song being played more than any other song that year. Wow. And it was thanks to all the fans who were calling the DJs. Cause this is back when you could do that. The, you know, the deregulation happened in 1996, but, Prior to the deregulation, you could own 7 a.m., 7 FM, 7 television stations, and it kept it in the hands of American families, patriotic families, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, people with moral conscience over what our children saw and heard. And and when people called in and, and kept requesting bad time to be in love, they had to play it, man. They had to play it. So... Even though my song didn't go to number one, it got played more than the one that did. <laughs> well, that's
0: the power of fans and not the power of payola in the suitcases of cocaine, you know.
1: Yes, that is definitely the point, brother.
0: And as that is far- how decisions were made in radio stations, you know. Who had a yeah. bigger suitcase of of uh drugs or money or who made a better yeah. deal to, for the for the for the time and the you know the airing?
1: Yep. Yeah. And as far as locomotion, Todd Rundgren was uh, producing our album and he was in Michigan at the swamp, uh, the studio that was across the street from my farm that we lovingly called the swamp. We had to dig a pond in order to get a perk test there so we could put the studio in. And it was back in the woods. It was way at the back of the property, 80 acres over there. And I had gone home to the farmhouse to eat lunch and I'm coming back down to the studio and the, the driveway of course is the dirt road and a dirt driveway. There's no paved to anything. And I'm just loving it because it's a beautiful sunshiny summer day. And I could hear the guys in the parking. Lot. I couldn't see them yet, but I could hear them talking. They were out having a smoke and what have you. And I come walking down this driveway to the studio Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. And they, they start singing the backgrounds. Come on, baby. And and Rundgren comes walking out. Just as I walk around the corner uh, of these trees, and, and I go across this little bridge we had there, he comes walking out of the end of the studio because you know the, the studio door was wide open, such a great day. And he goes, What the hell is that? I said, What do you mean? What is that? He said, that song, man, what is that? I said, that's a little Eva, man. That's the locomotion. He says, well, get your ass in here because we're going to do the locomotion right now, man. This is it. This is hot. So we go in and this is the days of two inch magnetic tape, you know, 24 tracks, right? Yep. So he would hit the red button, the record button and come out into the studio and he's clanging the ashtrays together and, singing all the real high falsetto parts. And then when I took my guitar lead, he walks over to the Echoplex. He grabs that tape head and he takes it from one end to the other. And it sounded like the guitar was eating itself. Just, oh my God. And he was grinning ear to ear. And that song was a big hit because we were having fun with it. I'm telling you, we had so much fun recording that song in the studio. It couldn't help but be a hit. Infectious. And, yeah, man, and and thank God for that.
0: Well, it's because the, the reason why I ask is because you guys had so many strong songs. Sometimes bands do; they have to do them. They want need a, a good filler, or a good you know what I mean. Because the songs they don't have that many good songs. You know, my captain. I mean, you had some killer of your own songs, like. You didn't you, you know what I'm saying you wouldn't need other songs to
1: add to you guys.: Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, no. Carol King actually wrote uh, locomotion, and little Eva was Carol King's housekeeper. And Carol King is sitting at the piano, writing locomotion, and she's singing it, of course. And then she hears little Eva mm-hmm. singing it a little while later in the kitchen and she walks in there and goes oh my god i love your voice you need to record this song and she took her down got her the deal uh the record deal and that song went to number one like uh by three different artists and grand funk was of course number number two but little eva god bless her man she's I love that, and I loved her voice, dude. Man, little Eva had the shit together.
0: That is that is awesome. It's exactly. good that she got some recognition too. I mean, it's really, it's it's good. It's good when the songs get a little more life, and it hopefully brings people back to that artist originally. You know, yeah. If I hear something from an artist, I always go, "Well, who did the version? I have to check it out. I gotta go deep. You know, Yeah. deep dive.
1: Yeah, buddy. Know? Yeah. Oh,
0: so, notoriously, you you the band split. And you started doing your own thing for a while, and you guys were always back and forth. But at one point, you started, when you started doing more solo stuff, you started your influence of religion and, and Christianity, and the lyrics started to change too. Yeah. they Did that just it, evolve, or was it more of a conscious effort?
1: It was in 1976. Don Brewer came into rehearsal, and uh, he's, he was an hour and a half late, and he was never late for anything. And so we figured, man, I wonder if he got in a car accident. You know, I mean, your mind just yeah, goes,
0: right.
1: Here's a guy that's very punctual, that's not there. So he comes in late and he announces to everybody in the control room. He walks in, he says, You guys, I'm over it. I got to find something more stable to do with my life. He says, I quit. I said, What? He says, I'm over it. And he walks out. Out of the blue? Yeah, just out of the blue. So, And people thought that I broke the band up, but I didn't break the band up. Brewer broke the band up. It was him that said he wanted to do something more stable with his life. So I went and I started forming my solo band right then. And, of course, cut a couple of records uh, for Atlantic, uh, 1977, 1978 no frills in 78 and just Mark Farner on a white horse in 77. That's the one that Dick Wagner produced. And, uh, and at the time the guy who signed me was the vice president of Atlantic and he got shit canned. (laughs) So I was there with no friends (laughs) and no promotion, but I still played out and, uh, you know, and it wasn't until 1981, I think it was, when Mel Shocker says to me, Barner, man, we need to put the band back together. And I said, Well, s- see if Brewer wants to. He was the one that called it quits. You know, he was the one that broke the band up.
0: It was never thought to play without him.
1: Well, was I, never- w- I was doing my own solo thing. Uh right. but I I, did, I never said I was Grand Funk. I always said Mark Farner of Grand Funk. I, I would I wouldn't lie to people, man. Uh while you are the
0: guitar and you are the voice of it, you write the songs.
1: Yeah, I wrote well, some bands, you, yeah. So you know right. in, in some
0: bands you can do that. You can be like, Well, each person makes up a good part of the band. And I take it away from the other members, the drum sound and the bass sound, but we're doing like the position of a
1: couple people in the band, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyways, uh we got we got back together because Brewer agreed to do it. And then in nineteen eighty two, I was in Hong Kong when I got the message that our manager had died. Andy Cavalieri, God rest his soul. And so I canceled my trip to Australia because we were I was out doing some promotions with PV electronics, you know, mm-hmm. ED corporation that was doing clinics all over the world. And um, I had to cancel my trip to Australia, like I said, and, and I returned back to the U S in time to go to the funeral and, and pay my respects to the family. And, uh, and that we tried to get um, all of the paperwork and, and the things that were in our manager's office, but the executor of the estate would not give us anything and the band broke up long story short the band broke up, and then we didn't uh we didn't play again until nineteen ninety six uh was the year after uh my ringo star and the all star band uh experience
0: which is awesome
1: and and uh we played for 96 and 97 and those guys said, well, we we don't want you playing any solo shows because it'll be competition for the grand funk shows. I said, okay, for a period of two years, I can, I'll do that. But dude, I got, you know, solo shows. I can, I can go, I could be out when, when we're not playing, I could be playing, uh, doing shows like, you know, be playing, making more money. So uh, anyway, make a long story short it was in 1998 it was in the third year because the, the first year we only had done like 14 shows out there but then david fishoff who does rock and roll fantasy camp he also had done uh, ringo stars all star band uh tours he was a promoter for that uh he told me he says you know we need to do something for bosnia because they really need some help and we need to we need to help that country. they you know, the children's hospital over there needs some help. Why don't we do a series of shows? He says, and I'll manage you guys. And, and it was great because we did uh, the Bosnia album. We played in Detroit and we had uh, Peter Frampton as a special guest in Detroit and Ted Nugent. And then we played New York city and we had uh Leslie West in New York City, and then we played LA. We had Slash and Billy Preston for special guests, and we did uh, the Bosnia uh album. And we put a, a wing on a hospital in Sarajevo. So it was a it was a good effort. And uh and then one night the the drummer comes to my room and he says, Farner, we all need to take our individual ownership of the trademark and sign it into the corporation where it'll have this protective umbrella. I didn't finish high school, Sean, and he had gone to law school. And I thought, Hey, he's looking out for the best interests of the band. Hey, you know, I'll do that. I said, and this was after a party. We had uh after show party, had a few drinks and uh, I wasn't looking out. No,
0: it was a trusting a friend. This was before Behind the Music came out and everyone heard all the bad stories.
1: (laughs) Yeah, So I said, okay, I'll do that. He says, okay, man, I'll go to my room and get the papers. And and when he went, I thought, well, why the hell didn't he just bring the papers with him? But I was in no frame of mind to reason at that point. When he brought them back, I signed the papers and that gave Don and Mel the authority because it's two out of three in a corporation to throw me out as uh, an officer of the corporation. And they went out with the, the three other guys and call it grand funk railroad, which is a cry and shame that they couldn't say grand funk revisited or something to give the fans a heads up that it's not the genuine article that it's not the real Grand Funk, because the guy that who who wrote and sang ninety two percent of the music is is not with this band. Well, so um, uh, you know,
0: as it as dust settles, if, if you've looked on any pages where the music is, you see like a live thing of, of them now. You know, the guitarist. I think Bruce a good guitar player and all, but if you look at the the sites where the comments are, every comment is about you not being in the band, how it's not the band on their YouTube page. Like so, like it, everyone's very aware. It's like it's so known you know what i mean
1: yeah i hear you and it i feel thing. sorry Huge for tonight. the fans man i feel sorry for the fans because a lot of the fans told me they went to see those guys and when i wasn't there they were disappointed of course and and they walked out so uh it, i feel sorry for them um and i'm i'm just i'm sorrowful because the the two guys we're not honest with our fans. It's like, that's a smack in the face to the fans to, to have them think that they can put three new guys in the band and call it grand funk. And well, it's,
0: a, it's a, it's a couple smacks because, because beyond that, those are, that you've been touring with it, you know, and doing everything else. Yeah. And it feels like it was a planned coup behind your back. Like they knew once they got the rest of the power, they could yep. distribute it that way. That's yep. like, the time behind you is kind of like they they were your buds, I yeah. assume. And and that's your band and your best friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's like getting divorced and then having your dog get away too. You lose everything. You know, right. you're not expecting the left turn.
1: Yeah, but but really the, the the only thing they could be while I'm still alive and sucking air, the only thing that they could be is a tribute band. Because for years, for 22, 23 years, I've been pleading with them to do the best thing for the corporation. I say, you know, uh, officers of the corporation have a fiduciary duty to do what they can to produce the most income. I said, mm-hmm. I've been willing, I've been encouraging you to let's go back as the original band and, uh, and make the most money
0: i satisfy,
1: satisfy the fans who who are really uh responsible for us being anybody that i mean in the first place they they were the ones that made us who we are the fans are and we could give them what neither one of us can give them apart from each other so i did that for 20 like i say 22 23 years and, and now I'm over it. I'm, I'm not going to plead with them anymore. I'm over it. I don't need to do that. I'm, I'm who I am. I still play my music. I got a great band. Uh, and I got guys that sing and, and play. But they, uh, Hubert Crawford, who is a drummer that used to, I met him when we played a show in Montgomery, Alabama. And the bill was war, grand funk, and James Brown and it was a street wow. basketball dude and it was you know tens of thousands of, of fans and i met hubert uh who ended up playing he told me yeah you know, you know he was a james brown's drummer and he told me that he learned how to play listening to don brewer and i said so you know all the grand funk songs oh yeah he says i know them. And then my son, Jason, who was on the road with me at the time, he says, dad, I think you and Hubert are going to be playing music together. I said, really? I mean, this was years before we, it actually happened. But then when uh, the time came and uh, and I needed a drummer, I had his number and I called him up. I said, Hey, do you want to play drums? You know, with Mark Farner, he goes, man, I would love to do that. So our first rehearsal, he knew everything. He knew every song because this is what he was raised up on. This is what he learned how to play drums to. And and Don Brewer is his guy, his drum guy, just like Jimi Hendrix is my guitar yeah. guy. You know, that's the way it is. So uh, my band is, uh, is an it's energy good. band. It's not grand funk. It's not.
0: No, but it's a good band. They, they are good. I've seen a lot of live songs yeah
1: um, and uh we give the audience a great show and and because we love each other and we love the music uh the fans get it we have a great time on stage. if i wasn't having a good time sean i wouldn't be there brother i gotta be having a great time i
0: don't know how you do it you look great i mean i i don't even know how you can perform at that level your voice hasn't changed as because your peers the voices are changing for people you know in the fifties and sixties voices are just going out the window for a lot of artists and yours is not even faltering. Well, you're you're shredding and your guitar, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm thankful. I'm very thankful, but I'm a spiritual guy. I know that inside of this bone suit is the real me and that someday this bone suit will expire. (laughs) It's right. got an expiration date someplace on this thing. You know, I haven't found it, uh, but uh, the, the spirit within us, uh, sometimes that spirit pushes this bone suit beyond the bone suit's capabilities, <laughs> and you you stumble, you trip, you stub your toe.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think you've got some good genetics, too, and, you know, a little, a little more than just just spirituality, because some people can be very spiritual and be in some bad shape. I hear. <laughs> as you. you get older, it's got nothing to do with spirituality. It's got something to do with your body and your genetics. Yeah, so I think you are. It's a gift you have that's you know keeping you rocking.
1: Hallelujah. Are you well, doing
0: anything though to like to to keep your hands and your voice in shape?
1: I exercise by reason of use. <laughs> you know, I play that guitar. Sometimes I get up at. Three, four o'clock in the morning, I'll play for a couple of hours, you know, electric, mm-hmm. where it's not going to wake up my wife. But my wife, Lisa, and I have been married 44 years.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. That is that is an amazing amount of time. Yeah. And she smothered
0: you with a pillow. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how i I know it. <laughs> she's my better three quarters, brother. <laughs> yeah. But if it wasn't for her keeping my shit together. I wouldn't have the uh the life I wouldn't have the time to put in to my music but she loves it when I'm in playing my music and uh Mark Slaughter and myself are working together and you know who Mark is he from the oh, group yeah. Slaughter yeah.
0: yep
1: and uh he was on Howard Stern with me
0: I saw that that, is, uh, that was a good performance. Oh my God.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. And, and uh, we had Kip Winger on bass, Sandy Gennaro on drums. We had Teddy Zigzag, you know, from Guns N' Roses on keyboard, and Bruce Kulick, who is now the guitar player for the faux funk.
0: That's right, that's right. Yeah. Good call.
1: And, and so uh, when, when I listened back to that, you know when I'm when I'm on stage singing, I'm not listening to the other players. I'm only listening to me, and I have to stay in that zone to stay with it. You know, to, to mm-hmm. stay in character, right? But when I listened back and I heard Slaughter singing that, "Am I in my?" You know, he's doing the high harmony in that in that bridge, and I thought, "Wow, man, that's that's good. He hit it and he hit it." he did not see he hit it in key and he's playing and it was very complimentary to what I was doing and then he sends me a while back he sends me a tape of uh you my know, tape I call it a tape <laughs> but a digital thing of some songs that he had worked on and it's bitching I mean really good production I, I commented on it. I said Mark man that that's some good production who's doing your production he said me and i want to produce you i want you to sound this good and i know that you've got some music and so we've been working on songs and him and i wrote a song i had the basic track of it when i got to his place in tennessee it's called anymore and i want uh i want people to look for that song. And when it comes out, man, it's going to touch hearts. Uh, the the truth is in there, but it's really produced well. And, uh, and I've done a couple of other songs that, you know, that we've started and we are working back and forth and I just got a Kemper. You know what that is? Yep. Yep. Kemper. Uh, so that I can do parts from my house in Michigan and, and he can lay it in the, in the grooves, in the tracks in Tennessee, uh, but he is producing my stuff and I'm going to go back down there and do some vocals and do some stuff. You know, uh, when we're together, it's magic. It really is magic. Cause he's part native American, you know, the same as, as me, my wife is part native American and we got, we have something in the blood here that people need to feel. And uh, I'm looking forward to finishing Doing some stuff that and getting it out there where people can feel the goodness of this music. And the intention is love from our heart, brother. Both That's, of us are there.
0: He's always been a grounded person, anyhow. You never heard any rock star stories. And he's underrated as a guitar player, like as a producer, you know. And he's got a, a million voices. That's his gift. Yeah. That's his yeah. Voices can do. So, this is excellent to hear you guys working together you know that is going to be fantastic so is it going to be like an album or like just like the digital singles like people are doing nowadays how you release it
1: we're going to do an album uh ep or album it's going to be more than you know just one song for sure we've got three or four of them started and uh, i've sent another five of them down to them uh so we'll we'll definitely do it Oh do an album yeah i appreciate that and you know what that brother did? He gave me a guitar that Forrest Lee Junior made, and it's called. I named her Miss USA because it's. It looks kind of like a telly body shape, you know, the style yep. of a telly, and it's got the single single coil, but it's got a a pull push on the on the tone control for a boost. It's got a little boost in the in the circuit, and then uh, you know, it's got the humbucker on the neck, uh, but it's painted metal flake uh, star blue, red, white and blue with the stars. And and it's then the neck, dude. Oh, my God. It's the slickest neck I've ever touched. And this guy, I'm telling you, uh, he can make guitars. Holy crap. Forrest Lee Jr. Uh, I'd never heard of him. And a thing weighs like five pounds, five point three eight three. That's all it weighs. I'll
0: have to I have to Google that. So before we wrap up, I do want to ask a couple of gear questions for you, because so, you're yeah. talking with the, now now with that guitar. Because your other guitar, you generally don't your volume. You kind of don't really do a volume. So this one having the boost on, it, it's kind of interesting, a little different for you.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, man. What's your main
0: I, guitar right now? The same one you've been using? or
1: My main guitar right now is a Parker Fly. I've been using it ever since uh, 96. And that, Parker Flies are great. If you get one that was made in Cambridge, Mass, the ones that were produced after it moved out of Kenny Parker's hands, they don't have the craftsmanship. They don't have the fit and finish. That those first 10 years when it was Cambridge Mass, there was you keep
0: it stock? Is a stock guitar? Is a guitar totally stock?
1: Oh, totally. Totally, man. Change it. But I had Kenny uh make a hard tail. And Larry Fishman and and Kenny, uh, they they love me. So they said, (laughs) man, we'll make you what you want. And so I got two nice hardtails that are both right around five pounds and both of them have a, a different voice. Of course, no two guitars are ever going to sound exactly the same, you know, but I'm a tone maniac. I love the tones. You know, I got to have the fullness of the tones. I can't have screeching or any of that. I got to have uh, if it's an overdrive, I want that tone and back of it, man. And I want that wood coming through. <laughs>
0: What do you what are you using for strings? How uh what's the gauges on that?
1: Diodarios EXL 140s. It's uh like a 52 on uh on a top and a 10 or you know is Diodario. All right.
0: Yeah, I got some stuff.
1: Yeah, man. That's that's a great company. They are they're awesome. Yeah. I, I love Steve Lohmeyer. He's a, he's the rep and uh, he's a good dude. He's a Patriot and he takes care of me. He really does.
0: It's a good family owned company. It's a, they have a good reputation. They're good, yeah. solid people. They have a good mission statement, you know, yeah,
1: man, and they, they care. I mean, you, that, that pack of strings is it's got some kind of gas in the envelope that keeps them pristine. Until you open, it's not exposed to oxygen or the air or anything. And uh, and every pack of EXL 140s that I put on, or Jage, my, my guitar tech, uh, you know, and, he, and I met him when I was playing with Ringo. And I told my wife, Lisa, I said, whatever, if I could get that guy for my guitar tech, whatever it takes, I need to have him because... I've never seen anybody as conscientious as quick as knowledgeable but he's been out with everybody from Frank Sinatra Michael Jackson uh, uh, Melissa Etheridge I mean he, he's been out with everybody seriously Joe Walsh he's been out with the Eagles he's I mean he's been out and uh, and he's been not only has he been my Guitar tech and stage manager for all these years. He's my best friend, dude. He's really a good soul on this planet.
0: So, awesome. and that's a happy. That's the best part of this whole thing, and this whole story is that you're happy and you're playing and you're you're enjoying it. And that's what it's all about. I mean,
1: yeah, that's right. You know? Amen. And it is- shows. It shows when you get on stage, man. If you're happy, that audience is going to be happy. <laughs> it is.
0: It's true, true, true. This has been fantastic. So I want people to go back and say it again. The new DVD.
1: Mark Bond. Freiner's American Band from Chile with Love. That's right.
0: And $3 of
1: it goes to the Veterans. Veterans Support Foundation.
0: Right. Yep. Um, we have all the links. We'll have the links for everything of all your stuff and the veterans right underneath the show when we post this. Thank so you. Everybody can, can check that I out too. Okay?
1: That. I appreciate that so much. God bless you, man. Thanks yeah. for helping and our brothers and sisters.
0: One, well, and one last thing there's a song, Never and Always. So we're going to on this one. This is a beautiful, this is just a hint of you doing a song and then adding Mark Slaughter on top of it. It is such a nice song. And the video and the concept is fun. Thank you. Know, you. It's, it's recreated. Really it's, it's done really well because you know nowadays a lot of videos are kind of done. Not, the quality is not always the same. This one is actually shot like it's a movie, yeah. That, it has a, has a plot,
1: it was done by the same people who shot the video at Teatro Caupalican in Santiago, and it is Abismo Films. And uh, Carlos, my god, he heard that song and he says. Brother Mark, I'm just gonna put something together, and that's what he put together, dude. He says put it together, I'm, right? Yeah, <laughs> man. He said I'm just gonna throw something together, and then once he had it so far along, he says I'd like to get you in, and he told me about laying, you know, in a hotel room, laying in a bed and getting up. At the, right. I said I think I could do that. I think I could yeah. do
0: that. He <laughs> does an easy part of the treatment for you, right? Of the, the yeah, man. <laughs> but it's a very powerful song, and it's kind of good because. You need. it's a good video, you know, a weak, weird video would have really kind of killed the song and not yeah. really given it the attention, you know? Yeah. Because it's a really powerful song. I mean, the fact you're writing songs that strong still. Yeah. From 70 to now, that's insane. That is... Yeah,
1: uh, thank you, brother.
0: So I encourage people to go to the website. It's a really good website. And he's got, you know, uh, Rock and Roll Soul. That's a good, fun song. He does live. Actually, yeah. on CD, I believe, right? Uh yeah. DVD. And the videos on there is a ton of stuff on there references to, to the veterans. So it's chock full of stuff. It's been, a, it's been a great thing and I'm looking forward to seeing this, this release with you and Mark Slaughter too. I'll have to have you back to talk about the album. Yeah, man. <laughs>